listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. In Luke 24, we read an amazing post-resurrection account of Jesus that should not only rivet our attention, but also teach us a thing or two about the Old Testament. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, it says this, that very day, which day? That Sunday, the first day of the week, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that particular day, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had all happened, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of him, the burial of Jesus, and then his resurrection. They were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, the Messiah, the deliverer. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. A reference or a a recollection to Jesus' own words, his prophecy, his prediction about his own coming back to life after three days. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Look again. 
Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What we learn here is that the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, all of it points to Jesus Christ. Jesus used the Old Testament as the schoolmaster, the teacher to these disciples, Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus to help them understand that all the things in the Old Testament were not just written about a Messiah. They weren't just written about the Messiah. They were written about him, Jesus of Nazareth, as the prophesied, promised Savior, Messiah in the Old Testament. So if we want to understand the New Testament, the best thing that you need to do, what we need to do is understand the Old Testament. And in particular, there are two things that we need to understand that are integral to the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. They're integral to the life of a Christ follower. Those two things are communion, or the Lord's Supper, and baptism, water baptism. By the time we're done, you'll have an understanding of both of those, hopefully in a way that will help you appreciate the Old Testament, appreciate the New Testament, and most of all, help us appreciate what Jesus did for us, what Jesus does for us, and what God Almighty has done for us in giving us a book that is unlike any other book, that the Bible really is such a book that man couldn't write if he would, wouldn't write if he could, The Bible is unique among all other books, and it all points to Jesus of Nazareth. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12 as we begin to explore, in particular, the background for communion, what we enjoy today as the Lord's Supper, communion. It has its, its origin, it has its understanding way back in the Old Testament. And here's the beginning, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So first things first, what happens in Passover is intentional as happening first. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall 
burned. The idea that's presented here is it's totally given over to God, which is the whole point of everything we're talking about today. The idea of being totally, absolutely, completely given over to God. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And here's why it's called Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the quote-unquote gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am your covenant God. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven or yeast out of your houses. For if anyone eats what's leavened, what has yeast in it, from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts, your armies, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." In the first month, from the 14th day of that month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven, no yeast is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, what has yeast in it, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. In other words, I don't care who it is, no yeast. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. So when we get to the Apostle Paul, who was a recovering Pharisee, who wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament, and we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, but with the new bread, with a new life that does not have yeast in it. We're able to connect the dots and we ask this simple question, what is it that God had with yeast? Did he just have a thing where he, he just did not like yeast? We understand if we read the book of Leviticus, you could actually offer and you could actually make an offering of yeast, of leaven before the Lord. It's not that God had something in particular against leaven, it's flavor. It's that leaven provided a golden opportunity, an object lesson that would be carried over in the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover, 
as those two became interrelated and synonymous with each other by the time we get to the New Testament times. And it's what leaven or yeast teaches us about the issue of sin. The leaven and the bitter herbs that they are eating in the Passover symbolize, they represent now, even as they represented then, sin. That sin is bitter. It should be bitter to us, even as it's bitter to God. And all it takes is a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast to work its way through the whole batch. And in the same way, all it takes is a little bit of sin, one sin to permeate, penetrate, saturate, infiltrate, affect every area of life. In fact, I would go so far as to say, oftentimes, it's that one area of our lives that we refuse to surrender to Almighty God that wreaks havoc, even as it wreaks before God in every area of our lives. And so it's not a flavor issue that God has with yeast and leaven that comes up in the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 12. It is what the leaven, what the yeast represents. And the idea is that they were to get rid of all the yeast in all of their houses, all of the leaven. They were not to cook any bread that had any yeast in it so that when we get to 1 Corinthians 5, we read about Christ, the Passover lamb being sacrificed. The idea is that in the same way, that the Israelites were to clear their houses of all leaven and all yeast and not eat any bread in the Passover, the passing over of God for their sin. In the same way, we are not to tolerate any sin of any kind in any area of our lives. What's presented in the Passover is this. Those who had faith and obeyed the teaching of Moses that was really the teaching of God through his servant Moses, that's always the way it is in Scripture, and that's always the way it should be in a church. Any pastor, any elder, any teacher should always and only be teaching what God says is the truth. And what was being presented in the Passover is that those in the nation of Israel those who wanted to align themselves with the living and true God as opposed to the gods of the Egyptians would kill the Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. You had vertical and horizontal placement of blood, which reminds me of a thing or two. Vertical and horizontal placement of blood, the position that Jesus would have been in when he hung on the cross. And so when the angel of death came through as the judgment of God against the Egyptians, and by the way, the people being held in Egypt and being released from Egypt symbolizes and represents our deliverance from sin. God removes us from a life of bondage, a life of sin, even as the Israelites were held in bondage for 400 years. That's what that whole Passover thing's about. That God would see the blood offered in faith that they had to take God's word for it, that God was going to pass over and not judge them. And God kept his word. If you read the rest of the account in the book of Exodus, he passed over those who by faith obeyed the word of the Lord in the same way. 
When we accept Jesus as our Savior, as our God, as our Master, as our Lord, as our Messiah, as the sacrifice on the horizontal and vertical beam of the cross, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God himself, God Almighty, passes over the judgment that we otherwise would deserve and gives us mercy. Amen gives us undeserved favor. This is a covenant meal that we see in Exodus chapter 12. It's not the only time we see a meal being significant in the Bible when it comes to God moving. In Exodus chapter 24, turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. In verse 1, it says this, Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, symbolism, a pillar per tribe. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Look at the roll of blood again. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Again, we see the people agreeing with God through the word spoken through Moses. And we see that the biblical principle is obvious. Partial obedience would have been disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. They are saying, we will follow everything that our covenant God is telling us to do. Everything that Yahweh is telling us to do. That's what you're reading when we read in the English language, capital L-O-R-D. It's the English equivalent of the covenant personal name of God, Yahweh. Tell them, I am has sent you, Lord, Yahweh. That's what we're reading here, okay? So they say, we'll do everything that the Lord has spoken. We will be obedient. Verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh, the Lord, has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab, look at this, and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness, or lapis lazuli, some of your translations would have that. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They ate and drank. They ate 
and they drank. This is a covenant meal with Almighty God, the living and true God, the God who makes all other gods by comparison pale. There are no other gods, even though people might call them gods, in comparison to Yahweh, the living and true God. So this is a covenant meal. The Bible says that nobody can see God and live. And yet here it says that they beheld his feet and something underneath his feet was like the heavens itself, this lapis lazuli, this sapphire color. And what it is, it's a pre-Jesus, it's a pre-Christ appearance where we know that God himself doesn't have feet, but Jesus would have feet. And this is a looking forward to the celebration of the Lord's Supper where Jesus, the Lamb of God, would actually preside and the people would be able to enjoy the disciples. Remember, there are 12 disciples. There were 12 pillars, 12 tribes, one disciple, one apostle for each of the tribes. God not neglecting the nation of Israel. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. So we know that nobody can see God and live. And so what's presented there in that scripture where it says nobody can see God and live, the idea is that nobody can see God, behold him in all of his splendor, in all of his greatness and all of his glory. And so here what we see is not them seeing all of the glory of God. They see his feet and something under his feet. They see part of God. This is why it's significant when we get to Exodus chapter 33 and Moses says, show me your glory. And when God eventually appears before Moses, they, what's recorded is that he just sees his back. To behold God in all of his glory and all of his splendor would mean instantaneous death because of his purity, his holiness, his majesty, his glory. But here in Exodus 24, they see the feet of the one who would come into this world, born of a virgin, Jesus, and they have a covenant meal together. They eat and they drink. And so when we get to, by the time we get to Mark chapter 14, we see huge significance. Now that we understand the Old Testament a little bit better and the concept of Passover and unleavened bread, we see huge significance in the timing of Jesus in which he decides to teach about the blood that he was going to shed the blood of the new covenant. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, it says, and on and on the first day of unleavened bread, look at the timing, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Notice that this takes place during the Passover in the context of what we now just read in Exodus chapter 12 and the idea of the covenant meal and God passing over sins. This is the context where communion has its birth. This is the place where communion finds its meaning. Verse 13, and he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. 
And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here are the 12 taking unleavened bread during the festival and the feast of Passover, during the Passover meal with the Passover lamb. And I'm not referring to the lamb. I'm referring to Christ, their Passover lamb, is in their midst. And they are dipping unleavened bread because the symbolism of there being no yeast, which symbolizes the absence of sin and the tremendously high price that was paid by any lamb and the tremendously high price that was paid by the lamb of lambs, the Passover lamb, Jesus. It's in the midst of this covenant meal that Jesus decides this would be the golden opportunity to teach about how God the Father passes over sin as a direct result of me being the ultimate once and for all Passover lamb sacrificed for them. It's in the midst of that setting. That's the context that Jesus chooses to again demonstrate that he was either out of his mind or going out of his way to help the disciples understand this is that. And so when we read in Luke's gospel about Jesus opening up their eyes to Moses and the prophets and everything in the Old Testament and how it pointed to him, we can understand and appreciate the significance of Jesus now taking his place as the Passover lamb and the consequences of personal faith in Jesus and what that means for the removal of every single one of our sins. There is not one sin too dark and dastardly that is bigger than the ultimate sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of that sin and all of our sins made by Jesus. There is not one sin that you've committed, could commit, that I've committed, could commit, that is insignificant before God. We are to have rid ourselves of every sin that we're conscious of, to ask God for mercy and for grace because of the tremendously high price that was paid through the blood of Jesus. If we read Genesis chapter 14, we read about a man named Melchizedek who comes out of nowhere. We read Hebrews chapter 7, we read about the interpretation about who Melchizedek is. He's a pre-appearance of Jesus. He comes out as a priest. We don't know his background, humanly speaking. And he brings out bread and wine. And Abram enjoys a precursor, a foreshadowing of communion with a human being named Melchizedek who represents Jesus 
as our great high priest. You don't believe me, read Genesis 14, read Hebrews chapter seven, and you'll understand how Melchizedek is a type of Christ appearing with bread and wine. There's something about God wanting to cut a covenant with his people, and God likes to throw down with a meal. He likes fellowship. Think of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, relationship with each other. Think of the fact that while you were a sinner, while I was a sinner, when we didn't even know that we were a sinner, Christ had already died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus pursued you and he pursued me even when we didn't realize we needed to be pursued because in ourselves, we don't pursue God. And so it's in this context of the Passover meal where God in the Old Testament was having a covenant cut, where God was providing an object lesson for his people. That's the opportunity where Jesus decides to use himself as the very clear fulfillment as the ultimate Passover lamb in the midst of the Passover Seder the midst of the Passover meal. And so this is what's happening when we read Mark chapter 14, verse 22. As they were eating, eating what? The Passover meal. He, the Passover lamb, took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Out of your mind or going out of your way? Jesus is intentionally inserting himself in the Passover meal using the object lesson of unleavened bread, bread without yeast, to represent his own body without sin and saying, take this, every one of you, and eat it. This is not just a piece of unleavened bread. This represents my sinless body given for you. In verse 23, he took a cup, by the way, which is the third cup of the four cups that would have been enjoyed during the Passover Seder, the four cups. They would have drank from four cups during that Passover meal. The third cup was the cup of redemption. The fourth cup was the cup of the kingdom, which we don't have a biblical account that they drank from the cup of the kingdom, but Jesus seems to allude to it here. Fitting that Jesus would take the cup of redemption as he was preparing to redeem the lives of every believer whose sin would be passed over with the shedding of his own blood as the Passover lamb. Fitting that he would take that cup, the cup of redemption, and say, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until, this is the cup of the kingdom, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus always using the right opportunity to drive home the point so that it was unmistakable. He's either audaciously out of his mind to say that this wine represents my blood or he's going out of his way to help them understand 
what they would eventually understand with the clarity that maybe we look back at now and understand that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. One without sin, who intentionally used the festival of Passover, the Passover meal, to use an object lesson for you and me that would make it unmistakable that it's not just a Passover and deliverance from Egypt that God was concerned about in Exodus chapter 12. It's not just having a meal with Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel that's referenced and a concern of God in Exodus chapter 24. All of those things point toward the Messiah, the Savior, the one who at that meal took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take every single one of you and eat it. This is my body without sin given for you. That's the context of communion. It's the object lesson before communion. The point that's being driven home is that all of those things in the Old Testament point to Jesus as recorded in the New Testament. So we understand the significance of communion being tied to the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that would be for your forgiveness, for my forgiveness, for the forgiveness of anybody and everybody who simply puts their faith in Jesus. That's not the only significant thing that Jesus gave us to do to help us understand what he went through and what we are identified with. If we look at Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19, Jesus said, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus passionately concerned about making disciples. There are those who were following him and now Jesus is saying, you're following me, help others follow me as well. And the first thing that he lays down for them is this thing that we call baptism, which is significant and important. And it's not something that we can pick and choose in our walk with Jesus. Many of us, unfortunately, in the United States of America, we have kind of an a la carte approach to Christianity. I'll go through this smorgasbord of all that God offers and I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I'm not ready for that yet. That's too significant, too difficult, too hard, too serious. And we think that we're the ones that get to pick and choose what God has for us. And Jesus says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't you let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus is out of his mind or going out of his way. He's inserting himself in equal footing on equal footing with the Father, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son in my name and in the name of the Holy Spirit. We have a clear teaching on the Trinity just there in Matthew 28, verse 19. The idea of three persons, communion together, relationship together in one God. It's there in Scripture. And Jesus commanded the disciples saying, when you make somebody a follower of me, when someone becomes a follower of me, the first thing that you need to teach them in regard to all the things that they need to learn about obedience to me is to publicly identify with me. 
publicly identify with me, which makes perfect sense by the time we get to Acts chapter 2. And a man named Peter who had denied Jesus three times in Jesus' deepest darkness time of need. A man named Peter stands up and helps the people understand what it means that God had poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, on that feast of first fruits where God birthed the church. God raised up a man who knew a thing or two about yeast, knew a thing or two about sin, knew a thing or two about falling short when God needed him to come through most. When the Holy Spirit got a hold of Peter, he was a new man, just like you will be a new man, just like you will be a new woman, just like I became a new man, just like everybody becomes a new man and a new woman when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them as a result of giving our lives to Jesus Christ. Peter stands up in verse 14, Acts chapter 2, and it says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. We don't see Peter cowering anymore, do we? For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he quotes Joel chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall declare the glories of God. That's what the word prophesy means there. These guys in Acts chapter 2 were given the supernatural ability to declare the glories of God in a human language that they did not know prior to the enablement of the Holy Spirit. That's what's being taught here in Acts chapter 2. And Peter is saying, this is that. Joel prophesied about that. That in the last days, which we are now in, Peter is saying, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile alike, and people would declare the glory of God, not just the Jewish people. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. Unthinkable that God would use a servant to declare the glory of the servant of all servants, Jesus. Those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall declare my glory. They shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Speaking of the time when Jesus was there and the time looking forward to when he would return. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. In other words, you know the story about Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then Peter, who is now prepared, quotes Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was, was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. Talking about Jesus would not rot in the tomb. You have made known my known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us to this day. In other words, he was not writing about David. He was writing about someone from the line of David, a descendant of David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. This is a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12, 13, and 16. The Davidic covenant where God promises someone from the line of David, a descendant from David who would be the ruler and the one who would reign over the nation of Israel, the one who would be the Messiah. That's what he's saying here. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then Peter again quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1, when you're prepared. I'm sure that Peter never dreamed that he was going to get up that day at 9 o'clock in the morning and preach this message that we're now reading about. But Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, being immersed in the Word of God in the Scriptures, can be used by God and the power of the Spirit to say the right word at the right time so that God, through this fallen man who had denied Jesus three times, now was recorded in one of the greatest passages, not just in the Bible, but in all literature, anywhere, everywhere, as being the man that God used to lead 3,000 people to the literal feet of Jesus Christ. And if that is true in the life of Peter, it can be true in your life and in mine. Peter did not let his past get in the way of his present. And neither should you, and neither should I. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, remember Romans 1.16, for the Jew first, then for the Gentile. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, the one spoken of in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, you're waiting for the Messiah, you crucified him in fulfillment with the plan and the foreknowledge of God who knew that each and every one of us needed the Passover lamb so that God could once and for all pass over every single one of our sins. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not you might receive, you will receive upon personal faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's the message of the gospel. Jew, Gentile, quote unquote, big sinner, quote unquote, moral person. All of us are on level playing field when it comes to the cross and the need for forgiveness and the removal of leaven from our lives, the yeast of sin. Every single one of us. The whole message here is that the good news is great news for every person on this planet. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you struggle with, Jesus paid it all. That's the message of the gospel. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. You notice we don't see anybody asking Peter, wait a second, what is baptism? What are you talking about? John the Baptist baptized people as a precursor to what Jesus would do. In John chapter 4, verse 1, we read about the disciples of Jesus baptizing more than the disciples of John. We see baptism being part of the Jewish practice there. So when Philip comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch, when we get to Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And Philip says, can I help you understand that? And Philip helps him understand that that is written about Jesus. Remember the road to Emmaus. Jesus opened up their eyes so that they could understand all the law of Moses and all the prophets, all the Old Testament, all the things that were written concerning himself. And so when Philip is done sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch who had gone to Jerusalem to worship, he just didn't understand the fullness of the gospel. When he accepts Jesus as his Savior and God, he immediately understands, well, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized too? Why shouldn't I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Why shouldn't I identify with the washing away of all my sins? See, baptism was already in place before the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he can use it as a symbol, as an example for believers in him to understand that this idea of picking and choosing how we want to identify with Jesus, to what extent we want to identify with Jesus, to what degree we want to obey Jesus is something we've made up. It's not the heart of God. It's not the plan of God. Baptism and belief in Jesus were never something that God intended to separate and divorce. I know that we make up Excuses in our minds. We're afraid of this. We're afraid of going under the water. We're afraid of people. We don't want to be embarrassed in front of people. But the truth of the matter is that through baptism, God has given us a beautiful object lesson, an illustration, an unmistakable teaching that your sin 
and my sin, every single one of our sins was dealt with finally, ultimately, once and for all on the cross with the shedding of blood, free for us, costly for God. And now, all that God asks of us is to identify with all that he's done through what baptism symbolizes, identifying with the death, the burial, the washing away of all the sin in our lives and the resurrection of Jesus and the new life that we now have in him just because, simply because of saving faith. Is God not good? Or is God not good? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.